Well, good afternoon to you. This is Alan Seymour, your host here on episode 24 now on the future of sport, all in sports talk. Delighted today to welcome almost exclusively uh, Nigel Adderley, um, ITV World Cup, BBC Match of the Day, so many credits uh, as a renowned sports football commentator. So I suppose we start, Nigel. Tell us all how it all began for you. Well, I started um, helping out when I was at university with a local radio station in, in York, um, in the north of England. Uh, there was a local BBC station there. I was always keen to get into sports uh, broadcasting and commentary. And I used to spend my Saturday afternoons while I was doing my politics degree, helping out in the studio, getting scores from local football matches and going out and reporting on the odd match as well. And it just gives you a grounding. So when I eventually finished my degree, I was offered a job uh, working in the radio station and it sort of went on from there. I mean, as a starting point, I mean, I think that's music or sporting commentary gold dust to many students and, and obviously a lot of my audience are students. Did the degree that you did, Nigel, have any bearing on some of the skill sets that perhaps or some of the thought processes you needed uh, to become uh, involved in broadcasting? Not really, no. I, I did uh, politics, which at the time um, I did British politics, which um, during my first term Margaret Thatcher was toppled as the leader of the Conservative Party. So it was a very interesting time from that point of view. But, but no, and I, and I think now if people want to make it in broadcasting students, they really need to take more vocational degrees. I, I never took a, a bespoke uh, journalism degree, which a number of people do, but increasingly as it becomes more competitive, I think a lot of organisations now are looking for people with that sort of vocational degree for them to be able to make progress. So I basically just got in and was able to, to, to work as hard as I could and, and, and not using that sort of route. I mean, I think that's a fascinating, and, and I totally agree with you. In fact, you know, many, many years before you, Nigel, I hasten to add, I actually did a politics degree as well. So we, we, we may share something in, in common. Kind of moving forward here, um, Mark McCormack, IMG, famously said once, you know, every time I sit on a plane, the person next to me is an expert, and obviously he was in advertising and marketing. Do you find, uh, it's not a fastball question, I suppose, maybe provocative, but do you find that in today's particularly social media presence, that everybody out there, you know, the, um, the people are, you know, the ITKs, as I think they're often referred to now, see themselves as experts. And how does that impact on what you're trying to do? Yeah, I think with social media around now, it, it's, it's very difficult because um, that, that it's because well, when I first started, uh, there were very few sources of information. You often had to go direct to the subject, or, or always had to go direct to the subject of a story to get a comment or, or to get some information about it. Now, of course, it is very different. And that, and that, I think, is, is a problem because particularly working on, on transfer deadline day, um, as I was this week, um, you have so many people now putting out stories, putting out rumours, putting out things that simply aren't true on social media. But when people read them on social media, it seems to give them some sort of credence. So it, it makes the job a lot more difficult. I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and, and I mean, both as a fan, as a communicator, um, um, you know, as, as a man who prides himself very much on sources. And uh, um, yeah. Sorry, can we break off 
I just got an imp- I've got, got a phone call taken. I need to take. I'm very sorry. Nigel, that's not a problem. I've just pressed the pause button, okay. and we can do that throughout. You know, you just bell me back when you're ready. Okay, thanks. Cheers. Okay, well, just to show live radio and the dynamism of transfer deadline, etc. Nigel's back with me now. So let's just consider, you know, the place of news and how important is news today? Maybe as opposed to or alongside, you know, critical opinion and judgments and the various things that clearly journalism and hopefully broadcast journalism represents. What kinds of views, approaches have you got on that, Nigel? Well, I think as a journalist that journalism is still very important and I think that sometimes that is lost now because we, we're often um, uh, suffocated and, and smothered by um, so many opinions from people who, as you say, think they're in the know from professional opinions, which of course are, are, are very, very valid from people who have played particular sports, but they don't often come from a journalistic background. But if there is an actual story... Then, then sometimes these things aren't really tackled in the mainstream media as they should be because the, the old-fashioned the old virtues of journalism often go by the board. Yeah, I, I think Nigel, and, and obviously I come um, from, uh, from a background where both critical, if you like, appraisal and opinion and commentary is very valid. But even in my educational perspective now, sometimes, you know, people who have a different view are castigated. Or, and, and I think there's got to be a striking balance. And I do believe, and I hopefully, uh, with good journalism and good reporting and good opinion, sport will definitely benefit. So... Kind of moving on as well, Nigel, I mean, I suppose in your time, can you give us maybe some illustrations of of how you would go about, let's say, interviewing the England manager or some of the the harder types of interviews you may have had to do with, uh, let's say, prickly football managers, something of that ilk? Have you got some good examples, perhaps, for my listeners? Well, when I was um, first starting out in journalism and local radio, um, I covered Blackburn Rovers, and I had to interview Kenny Dalglish <laughs> every Friday morning, who I know is uh, considered a legend to you, but it was a very difficult interviewee, and on the mornings I had to do him, um, I didn't sleep the night before because I was simply worried about um, how it would go, and yeah. um, Dalglish only used to give us three questions each. And basically, if you didn't like your line of questioning and just grunted to all three of them, that was all you got. And I used to find him very difficult. On occasions, away from the microphone, he was a charming man and very yeah. funny and, and clearly a very engaging character. But 
he just had a way of dealing with the media in general, which, which made life very difficult for you. As for Alex Ferguson, I only had limited dealings with him because for a long time in my career with the BBC, uh, he wasn't talking to the BBC, which I think basically summed up his attitude to the press at times. So I think that in many ways things are easier now because the, 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 air, the, the, the interviews around football managers and footballers are more sanitised now and the more press officers involved. While you possibly get less interesting stuff at times, you do get people who are more attuned to what the media want. So you, 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 you will at least get sound bites, which um, for Mr. Dowdley sometimes you wouldn't even get that. Um, I'm not going to because I don't want to upset any of my obviously uh, Liverpool supporters and fans, but I, I, I can relate uh, a, a lot to what you say there. You've recently covered the World Cup, Nigel, and I don't know how many World Cups maybe you've been involved in, and, and obviously we've got the next World Cup uh, coming up again. What kind of lessons do you think you learned, or what were the kind of um, successes and, and, and maybe some of the not-so-successful aspects of being a journalist and a reporter on, on a mega-event like the World Cup, for example? Well, I think things have changed even during the time I did it. I did my first World Cup in 2002 okay. in, in South Korea, and I did then 2006, uh, 2010, and I was actually working for FIFA um, as, a, as part of the host broadcaster okay. service in Brazil in 2014. And you go back to 2002, there was no social media to speak of uh, beyond email. There, were, there was no uh, Twitter, there was no Facebook. And when you covered a story... You covered it in a different manner. There were fewer people around as well when you were in um, the interview areas following games. Now there are so many people there, it does become very difficult to get anything coherent for many of the performers involved, and, and it does become difficult. But uh, I think that uh, it, they are fantastic global events, but it becomes increasingly difficult to get closer to the people involved and closer to the stories because the number of people following teams in 2002 in terms of media packs was far smaller than it is now and as a result I think the quality of the journalism gets diluted Right um, I mean that, 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 I think again that, that, that's a fascinating consideration on where we're at I mean do you see maybe just taking it slightly broader not just football per se here but you know, with social media, with the changing landscape of global sport, maybe with, uh, you know, the monetization and all the commercial interests, do you think the days of, of, of mega events like the Olympics, like the World Cup, maybe like the European Championships, uh, are not finished, but we have to take a different approach to them and where they're staged and how they're reported on? I don't think they're finished because they still generate plenty of money and, yeah. and that is the bottom line for the organisers and even though the Olympics have had their issues um, in recent years over, over uh, things such as um, alleged corruption within the organisation and also uh, uh, doping violations as well, the Olympics are still a huge event, the World Cup is still a huge event and that's despite the problems that FIFA have had and of course that they have been reported on by some fantastic journalists and, and really it, it's been proper old-fashioned journalism which has helped to, to root out many of the problems in FIFA in recent years and that shouldn't be forgotten but I think that they are massive televisual events still 
and even despite all the advances in social media uh, and other uh, areas of broadcast, broadcast technology, people still come together to watch the World Cup, to watch the Olympics, and I think they will continue, but there are more pressures on them now to conform to, to, um, uh, to, to other people's views on how sporting events should be run. Previously, FIFA could, could, could be, act as a private fiefdom, and they did. The IOC, to a certain extent, were the same. Now, there is so much scrutiny on these uh, organisations of various different uh, areas of the media. We have various different levels and understanding of the issues within the organisation, but everybody has an equal voice um, on Twitter or the internet, so it becomes difficult for those organisations to run global events, but they, they will clearly continue because they generate loads of cash. I mean, that commercialisation is clearly, obviously, it's not going to disappear, and in many ways it, it's kind of um, exacerbated and or encouraged and will only get more excessive in terms of that. Do you feel it's impacted on you as a, as a journalist and as a broadcaster? Have there been instances, perhaps, where you've felt, you know, within the schedules or within where you're broadcasting from, etc., that, you know, you're obliged to be uh, not second fiddle or kind of subservient to it, but there is a kind of sponsor input into what you're doing, or is that not a subject that really needs, uh, you know, talking about, Nigel? Oh, no, you look at newspapers now, and, and to a certain extent it's the same with um, TV and radio yeah. as well, that many of the big-name interviews you see in newspapers now come from sponsored events. Right. Uh, the players are wearing T-shirts bearing the logo of a bank or a, yeah. or a car maker or, or, or something like that. And it, often now, you only get to speak to the people involved in major sporting events, not through their clubs, where the, where the communications department often shut down many requests, but you speak to them when they're working for their sponsors, which often leads to a different type of interview. And, and people want copy approval and what um, will we'll, we'll butt in if, it, if the line of questioning is what is not something that um, not not necessarily what the player doesn't doesn't care about is, is concerned about, but what the uh, the people looking after the brand will, will concern about, be concerned about as well. And I think that's a problem. And also as well, even on the ground now, the number of times I, I cover matches in, in press boxes in in, in big stadiums. Um, involving uh, big clubs and, and, and in particular stadiums which have been redeveloped. The press seats now are often um, in parts of the ground where you don't get a fantastic view of the pitch because right. people have realised that the, um, the seats over the halfway line are prime seats for the corporates. Yeah. Clubs realise they can make more money out of um, having corporate guests sat over the halfway line than they can having the, the press sat in an area where they can actually report on the action from a, with, with an unimpeded view. So little things like that always make the job more difficult, but that's the way it is these days. I mean, Nigel, you've conveniently nice taken me on uh, through this interview, and we could talk all day on this, but I've got a couple of other themes that I'd like to develop, if I may, with you. The fact of commercialisation, I mean, moving globally, maybe moving across uh, um, to the USA, and, you know, they, and I know you've been involved in some events with me and my good colleagues at the University of South Florida and Bill Sutton who are coming over, uh, for a festival of sport later in the year in November and every time I visit them or every time we have a conversation it comes not down to this but the element of being able 
to get the balance right between the actual event and the sports competitiveness against the interest of the fan, the sponsors and the whole commercial setup. And they definitely see it better than anybody else, I believe, sport as entertainment. I think you've covered some MLS uh, football or soccer as they would call it and my good colleague Steve Gennaro who I know you've met follows Toronto FC and it's quite a big advocate and fan of the MLS what's your consideration of maybe not just the standard of football out there or soccer but how they approach you know all the elements of putting the package of uh, you know the soccer match the soccer league and where will they go forward well, I think it's a developing league. I think the standard is, is obviously not top quality at the moment, but it's a, it's a long-term project. Uh, they are getting players in from Europe who are often um, heading towards the end of their careers, and while there's a big emphasis now on developing the younger players, they need, they need the balancing act between getting big names in to attract people to, to also um, putting some sort of competitive product on the field. So I, I think they're heading in the right direction, and I enjoy covering... MLS, and I think media-wise, they are very savvy because they realise they're in a very crowded market with some established sports such as um, uh, American football, baseball and basketball. And those sports often have a, a relatively open-door media policy compared to uh, certainly football in the UK. So MLS has, has latched onto that and it's far easier to speak to a player or a coach from an MLS club than it is to speak to someone yeah. from a Premier League club in England. And that's um, you know, one of the issues that um, y you have to look at. I mean, you've covered the transfer deadline and we've all been wrapped or whatever or disinterested maybe on some levels, you know, the threshold of what's, what, what's interesting and what is fake these days, as we've alluded to earlier on in the interview. Do you feel the transfer deadline is fit for purpose these days? And maybe as, a, as another consideration, you know, what's happened at PSG and the transfer and financial fair play. I know there's a lot of loaded things in there, Nigel, but perhaps for my listeners you could give us some of your, some of your thoughts on some or all of those issues, Nigel. Well, I don't, I don't think transfer deadline works when it happens during the season. Right. Um, on the 31st of August or uh, the 1st of September in, in some countries around Europe just doesn't work at all because you have a situation where uh, teams try to get their squads together for the start of the season and then their plans are completely uh, readjusted by somebody else coming in with a, with a massive amount of money for one of their star players and I think that um, it needs to close, I don't know, 1st of August maybe, so everybody has their squads in place. And I also think the January transfer window helps to, to destabilise the situation as well. Um, maybe clubs should just be able to sign players as and when during a season as they used to, so there is less pressure built up. I mean, th this current transfer deadline, it, it is ridiculous in the UK that clubs have had three months to sort out deals, and yet they're trying to rush people in for medicals ten minutes before the end of the deadline. It, it just... It's a chaos theory, and, it, and that chaos theory is developed by the fact the transfer deadline is when it is, and, and Liverpool starts the season, a club you know, of course, overshadowed by the, the Virgil van Dijk and Philip Coutinho. Absolutely. Situation. One of them went well for Liverpool, Coutinho stayed, and uh, of course Virgil van Dijk didn't arrive from Southampton, so had all that happened before the season started, then at least everybody can say, right, here we are, this is what we're going to do now, apart from the situation we have with Arsenal, who are now in a complete state of, uh, 
a shambles because they've kept their best player who's going to run down his contract and leave for nothing and they weren't able to bring in any high-profile potential replacements. I, I mean, this is fascinating and, and I'm certainly going to have to close quite soon on, on, on this, Nigel. But my show, essentially, apart from the conversational aspects and the fact that I get to talk to great people who've got such insight and valuable comments like you've put forward in today's interview, the future of sport, maybe the balance that's necessary, and, and clearly those last comments really do serve a useful touch point here, you know, because most fans, you know, I know from my own kind of club and the timeline, you know, is FSG a good owner discuss? And you could have polarised opinion on it because they don't actually see the, the the aspects of, you know, what an owner needs to do in the business and the finance, etc. All they're interested in is, you know, their football club and the passion and all of those things. What kind of futures do you see in getting maybe a balance between what the owners do and the 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 necessary input, if you like, of financial support against the interests of clearly just having a football club and looking after football matters? Well, I think you look at someone like FSG, I I think they obviously, we've seen what they've done in America with the Boston Red Sox, and of course it's a completely different environment because you you have trading rather than transfers and the players are paid huge amounts of money in, in MLB and, and that is the way it's always been and the way it will continue and I think that they've had to adjust to working within uh, a fantastic football club in Europe where things are done differently and Liverpool are somewhat behind the curve because the previous owners didn't really react to the way that football was changing in a financial sense and as a result they were well behind Manchester United Chelsea Arsenal to a certain extent as well and I think FSG have done a fairly good job in, in trying to repair that but of course you'll always get fans saying why aren't we spending money, why aren't we doing this why aren't we doing that and I think that they've tried to bring some financial realism into running a football club as well which clearly having seen the transfer window and, and, the, and the deals that have gone through over the past couple of months there is an increasing lack of realism in football because there is so much money there, we've got Mbappe an 18-year-old going for a fee of 180 million euros. But he won't go this season. He's going on loan this season. He'll go next season because um, financial fair play dictates that Paris Saint-Germain can't sign another permanent player because they've already spent 200 million euros on Neymar. It is absolutely ridiculous. And I think that the owners do have a difficult situation because I think they come at it, the good owners come at it, with an air of reality. The bad owners come in, throw money at it, realise it doesn't work, and often leave the clubs in a really bad financial state. The good owners have to balance what the club wants to achieve and what they can achieve, and and often the fans um, only view one of those as really important. I mean, Nigel, I, I, I mean, I think, you know, if, if there was almost a, a man landing or, or, sorry, some an alien landing and listening to this conversation or, you know, my bank manager from 30 years ago listening to some of those points, you know, that there would be complete meltdown, wouldn't they? The lunacy and the idiotic approach that maybe some of these people take. It's been a fascinating interview. As always, great to talk to you, Nigel. One last thought, maybe. 
is football a product and clearly you know some of the commentaries that we've had in today's interview and does the product if it is a product or some of the aspects of making football better for fans and better uh, 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 as, as a visual and, a, and as an entertainment contact what would you suggest maybe we could do with football are there any changes that you would make well, I think it's become a product more than a sport, but I think that there have been benefits of that. We, we now have far better stadia, fans watch the game in far greater safety and have a far higher level of comfort than they did, certainly in the UK compared to, to 30 years ago, and I think that that is a good thing. But I, I think we have a disconnect now between the fans and the managers and the players, because and certainly the media as well, because ultimately... Fans slag off the media and many fans have a chip on their shoulder about how the media covers their club. But the media is the conduit from which the fans get unvarnished views about their club. Clubs always have their own media channels now and pump out, in inverted commas, exclusive interviews with basically their own employees. And, of course, a lot of it is, is tosh. It's absolute rubbish. It doesn't actually tell you anything you didn't already know or anything of real interest. The fans still want to know what is going on within their clubs, and often it is the media that provides the sort of information that, that gives the fans real benefit. But increasingly, I think that is disappearing, and I think we have a situation in the future where clubs will basically have their own TV channels, their own radio stations, and the, the mainstream media risk being locked out. Is that a good thing? Obviously, I don't think it is, coming from somebody yeah. in the mainstream media. But I think that uh, that is the way it's going. It, it's become a product, and as a result, the players and managers have become more distant from the customers. But I think there is so much money in the game now, and there is so much paranoia in the game now at times, when it comes to dealing with the media, that uh, that situation is not going to change. Nigel, a fascinating conversation interview, interview with you. Great delight for me, personal pleasure. Really, really thank you. And I think what you've demonstrated above all, you know, football will always be debated. Opinion is good. The beautiful game is probably alive and kicking. You take care and uh, we'll talk again very soon, Nigel. Many thanks.